0: 1940, and became fairly famous not for success but for its abysmal failure. And some of you perhaps have seen the footage of this failure. At the time of its construction, uh, that original bridge was set to be the third longest bridge or third longest suspension bridge in the entire world, and would be for the function of crossing the Puget Sound up in the Pacific Northwest. During the construction of the bridge, however, a new designer was brought on board, and in order to, to save a little money and to make the bridge look a little prettier to the observer. Uh, this designer made a few changes in the overall structure and the support beams. And while the bridge perhaps looked a little bit better, according to this new designer, it it became very quickly apparent that the changes to the form of the bridge had some pretty devastating effects on the overall function. Uh, Because within a very short amount of time of its opening, it became clear those changes made the bridge actually catch the wind and be moved by the wind, which obviously is not something you want a very large bridge to do. And only four months after its opening, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge became famous um, as people stood by and watched as 40-mile-an-hour winds ripped the bridge apart, caused it to fall in the Puget Sound, um, and caused everyone to realize that these somewhat minor changes to the form of the bridge actually, again, ruined the whole point of the function. And the new designer, even though he had good intentions in mind in making it cheaper and making it prettier... Um, the new designer missed some pretty obvious uh, design flaws in uh, the suggestions that he made. I begin with this description of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge because in the concept and the discussion of marriage, I feel like we have something that in many ways reflects the failures of the construction of that bridge back in 1940. See, In our culture, as you all know, marriage is talked about a lot. And a lot of people in our culture think that they they hold marriage up in high regards, and high esteem, and they speak of marriage as if it's a right for everyone to to enjoy, regardless of gender, regardless of sexual preference, regardless really of, of anything. But in the process of changing the form, changing what marriage looks like over and over and over again, what oftentimes culture fails to understand is they're actually destroying it. And they're actually missing the whole point of marriage that God had intended from the beginning. As we finish out the fifth chapter of Ephesians today, we are looking both to that form and also to the function. We're trying to answer the questions of why does marriage, or what does marriage look like, but also then, why must it look the certain way? Why, is we, why as Christians are we so particular about this concept of marriage? And so as we begin today, we begin in verse 31 with a bit of review. Um, Some things that you all have been going over for the last few weeks. But we begin with this form of marriage. What, according to Paul, and what, according to the rest of Scripture, is marriage supposed to look like? Now, as you all have seen in the last few weeks, from chapter 5, really starting in verse 22, through this verse today, Paul sets up some pretty high standards of marriage, doesn't he? Um, As Eric has no doubt gone through uh, he sets up some standards that, that are really challenging to all of us because as you saw back in verses 22 through 30 Paul talks about the concepts of submission in marriage right something that's very countercultural something that's seen as very offensive he talks about uh, the husband's love for his wife and how it must be selfless he talks about how it it must be caring and tender uh, he talks about really love and perfection because he keeps bringing it back to Christ and telling people, specifically husbands, last week, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church, as Christ loves the church. And it's probably not too much of a stretch to assume that, that none of us here really are perfectly upholding these standards of marriage. I, I'm assuming that's the case. And in particular, in Paul's day, it's it's safe to assume that these standards would have been just as offensive, just, just as... Ridiculous in the ears of most of his hearers. As perhaps you already know, the culture in which Paul wrote this letter did not really hold marriage up in high regards at all. These high standards that Paul described here were very countercultural. For the unbelieving community, marriage was somewhat of a throwaway relationship. Marriage existed primarily, if not entirely, just simply for bearing children, and so the wives were neglected, adultery was common. And multiple marriages were also very common, not not in not in any respect rare. Sadly, even within believing communities, marriage also really wasn't held in that high of esteem, that high of regard. Very famously, in the Jewish faith, uh, the the lawmakers, though those individuals were responsible for guiding the Jews in their faith, had come up with an abundance of reasons to justify divorce most famously being one in which if a wife just simply, in essence, ruined the dinner of her husband, the husband had a legal right to divorce his wife, which is clearly ridiculous um, and is setting the bar very, very low. Point being, in the community in which Paul is writing, he's writing to a group of people, regardless of their background, in which marriage would have been assumed to be a pretty basic relationship and really not all that important. As I already mentioned before, the same low view of marriage is, is pretty common in our own culture today. Despite how frequently people talk about marriage, and despite how, how it's supposedly a right for everyone to enjoy, when you hear the way people speak of marriage, they're typically speaking of it in a pretty negative way. You just turn on any popular television sitcom, and, and you know what I'm talking about, right? The husband's an idiot, The wife knows how to do everything. And they talk about how much better their life was when they were just dating. How much more romance was there. How much more fun they had before kids came along and ruined everything. And it's kind of a laughable subject. Um, And even in everyday life, when you talk to people, marriage is seen in this negative way where it's, it's kind of a beating to go through. And again, a lot of people speak as if life was so much more fun, so much more entertaining outside of marriage. Ultimately, we live in a culture in which the only standard that really is necessary for marriage is simply love. If people love each other, then that's marriage. And so as soon as they fall out of love with each other, well, then the marriage is dissolved. So again, even though we're in a very different culture today, marriage is is very similar today as it would have been in Paul's day. It's something that's easily thrown away, something that's really not seen as that valuable, and something that certainly would never reflect the, the high standards that Paul describes in verses 22 through 30. And as Paul begins our text today, he makes the the very clear point that these necessarily high standards are by no means his own invention. For again, as we read verse 31, Paul, describing the reason or, or why these standards are so high, says this, again, 531, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, recognizing how unique these standards are, Recognizing how, how incredibly high these standards are, Paul reminds us that this relationship requires a pretty unique definition itself. It's not just any relationship that can maintain, maintain this level of love. It's a very unique, very distinct, very special relationship. And so in order to maintain those, uh, those standards, you have to follow a, a specific set of means, a specific set of regulations. Those regulations, according to Paul in verse 31, are not just found in the Apostle Paul's writing, but they're based all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And if you would, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 2. You see, as Paul explains to us the type of relationship in which these standards are met, he reminds us that this is actually the way it was always intended to be. And even in the midst of our own cultural debate today about marriage, it's essential to remember this, that marriage isn't just our own social construct. We're not just coming up with the stuff as we go. No, this is something that was designed by God and described very clearly by God all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Back in Genesis chapter 2, if you're not familiar with the story, you are, are really caught in the middle of the story of creation, where God is speaking everything into existence, And so in Genesis chapter 2, everything is still good, everything's working as it's supposed to work, but there's one thing lacking, that one thing that is lacking is Adam's companionship. And so if you would look with me at Genesis 2 and read about the story of of the invention of marriage, and eventually we'll end where Paul quotes, but beginning in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, you see why this relationship is indeed unique from the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 then the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone i will make him a helper suitable for him out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field every bird of the sky and brought them brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man would call the living creature that was its name the man gave to all the the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field but for adam there was not found a helper suitable for him so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh." As you read this passage, you understand just how unique this relationship is when it's said in the overall context of creation. For as we see here in the beginning, God looks at Adam in his loneliness, in essence. He looks at Adam in his humanity, and he says something that's very surprising to the reader. He says, this is not good. In the midst of everything else being perfect, everything else being very much good, he looks at Adam sitting alone, and he says, that's not good. Adam is somehow incomplete. And so God sets to it to, to show Adam his own need of a helper. And so as we just read, God brings the, the, all of the animals uh, before him, the animal kingdom before Adam, and, and Adam names the animal kingdom. And in the midst of seeing all these animals, in the midst of naming them, what becomes increasingly clear is that none of these animals really fit that role as helper. None of these animals can complete Adam in the way that he needs to be completed. And so in order to address the problem, God here again puts Adam to sleep, and he takes a rib out of Adam and he creates Eve. He creates the woman. He creates Adam's wife. And as soon as Adam lays eyes on her, what does he say? He says, this is it. Right? Having seen all of the animal kingdom and understanding their roles, but understanding how different they were from him, the moment Adam sees Eve, he understands that Eve completes him in a way that no one else and nothing else really can. And so he breaks out in this passage, in essence, in poetry. Adam is enthralled with Eve. He is amazed at Eve, and he understands that Eve is this perfect partner, this perfect helper that is indeed suitable to help him then maintain his own calling and live out the commands that God gave him. In commenting on this unique compatibility, we have that verse in verse 24 of chapter 2 that Paul quotes for this reason. In light of that unique compatibility, in light of the way these two relate, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Again, in describing this unique compatibility, in describing this, this form of marriage, what it looks like, the writer here in Genesis, just like Paul, speaks to the fact that, that in order for this relationship to work, there needs to be this very unique level of compatibility. This is more than just two people hanging out. This is more than two people becoming friends. This is two people, as it says here, who are becoming one flesh in order to live out the calling God has granted them. According to this passage, in order to live out that calling and in order to become one flesh, the husband is to do two things. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The language here is language that perhaps a lot of you are familiar with if you've been to very many wedding ceremonies. It's the language of leaving and cleaving. It's as a result of leaving his parents and cleaving to his wife that the husband and wife then become one flesh. This so language, again, is unique and it is, is very important to understand if we are to properly understand the marital relationship. For in leaving the father and mother, the husband is is declaring this independence. It's not disrespectful to his parents. It's not cutting them off completely. But it's showing that he's forming this new relationship. It is a new family that's no longer under the authority of his parents who who have raised him. Furthermore, beyond leaving his parents, it's also essential that the husband, as the passage here says, clings to his wife or cleaves to his wife. The language here literally speaks to the idea of of two people being glued together. This is more than just two people finding each other attractive. This is much more than two people just having a lot in common. These are two people who, according to this language, are now bound together by the law in the eyes of God. And so again, this isn't a relationship that's just easily thrown away. These are two people who in the eyes of God are now one with another and love each other in this covenantal way, in this promissory way that says, I will neither leave you or forsake you. This relationship is set for the rest of our lives. And so the result, again, is is this one flesh union. They are one body. They are a new, unique, distinct person as a result of coming into this proper relationship. You understand just how serious this result is when you read how Jesus describes it himself. Again, in a famous passage over in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is questioned very famously about the, the reasons for divorce, and he's being asked, by the Pharisees as to basically whether or not he upholds the law that Moses set up and giving excuses for divorce. And in answering this question, before really he gets to to answering the question, Jesus reminds the Pharisees there what marriage was supposed to be from the beginning. And so listen to Jesus' own explanation using the same logic, the same text when speaking to the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 19, I'll pick it up in verse 3, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Again, in speaking on divorce, Jesus talks about just how serious and unique and distinct this relationship is, not just from an earthly perspective, but from the eyes of God. When a husband and wife come together as they were designed, they are one person. They are bound together, and this is why divorce then is, is so serious. It is breaking apart a relationship that is not meant to be broken apart. And so time and time in Scripture, when you have people like Paul or Jesus or others talk about this concept of marriage, they regularly bring it back to the beginning. And in light of the standards that Paul spoke of in Ephesians 5, in light of the standards that are seen throughout all of Scripture regarding the the different roles between husband and wife, the submission, the sacrificial love, you understand why it requires such a unique relationship. For indeed, the expectations are set very, very high when people get married. Uh, again, it takes far more than just a friendship to love people the way that Paul commands us to love one another within a marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And we all know what happens if any of these standards are jeopardized. I mean, obviously, if, if the husband fails to cling to his wife and he's unfaithful to his wife, obviously that's going to wreck the marriage. It's going to ruin a lot of trust. And yes, people can get over it at times, but it's very difficult. In the same way, we all have perhaps seen, maybe in a comical way, what happens when the, father or when the husband refuses to leave his mother and father behind? And there's that stereotypical tension between the mother-in-law and the new wife, right? And the mother-in-law will never approve of the wife because no one's good enough for a little baby boy, right? And we understand the connection, but we also understand that's really not a funny concept whenever you're actually experiencing it. And, and when the mother and father refuse to let go of the son, it can again create a lot of tension, We all recognize what happens when a wife refuses to submit as God commands her to. When a husband refuses to be tender and caring as God commands him to. And all of these standards, when any of them are jeopardized, the relationship itself is jeopardized. And and it becomes even more difficult than it already was before. And so as it stands, as of Ephesians 5, verse 31, the reality that Paul is reminding us time and time again is, as a believer, this relationship is very serious. And yes, the standards are set very high, and yes the standards have been just as high from the very beginning, and no, there's no way around it. As believers then, we rightly cling to this relationship. I think as believers, we rightly stand up in a culture that continually speaks down to marriage and we say, No, 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 it really is between a man and a woman. It really does have to, to be labeled and, and followed this form that Paul describes here. It, it just isn't our decision. It's it's what God has commanded. But at the same time, I think as believers, if we're honest, again, we have to take a step back and acknowledge that this is really hard. This is really difficult. Whether you're a husband or wife or a single person looking into marriage, the standards that Paul sets here and that unique nature almost seems and feels overwhelming. For no one could possibly live up to this expectation. And so if you're like me, as you read a passage like this, the question isn't just, why does it have to be so hard? The question for me, especially as I look back to Genesis, is why would God create this to begin with? Why would God design a relationship that is so incredibly difficult to uphold? Why would God in his goodness and in his wisdom and being all-powerful, why would he create Adam in a way that's incomplete? I mean, God's all-powerful, right? He could have created humanity to live in singleness and solitude. God create, could have created Adam in such a way where he's perfectly compatible with animal kingdom and he doesn't need this other form of love. He doesn't need to, to bear children through that way. He, he could have designed man any way he decided, and yet God, in his infinite wisdom, decides to create Adam in a way in which this need exists in which this passion exists, in which this desire exists. And so the further question we must ask is, why would God do that? Why does God design marriage in the way that he designs it? This is where we come into verse 32. This is really where we find this blueprint, this meaning of marriage, this function, the reason why marriage exists. And again, if you look back at Ephesians 5 verse 32, we see Paul explaining exactly why it's so difficult. Speaking again, Ephesians 5, 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now I suspect for a lot of you, this passage is somewhat familiar. And so the words that Paul speaks here perhaps are not too shocking. But we have to understand just how shocking of a concept Paul is speaking here and Paul is proclaiming about the function and entire purpose of, of marriage. For as he says here from the beginning, this mystery is great. What he is leading up to is in every way mysterious. Now, if, if you've been uh, with CAPE, as Pastor Eric's been going through Ephesians, this concept of mystery is by no means new, right? Paul has spoken of mysteries before. When Paul describes mysteries, he's, he's not something that's ta- he's not talking about something that's impossible to understand. He's just speaking of something that's always been true, but just revealed over time. And one of the main mysteries that Paul spoke of back in Ephesians chapter 3 really is not about marriage, but it's about the union between Jew and Gentile. If you just maybe turn back a page, you can see Paul describing that. In Ephesians chapter 3, really verses 1 through 13, we won't read all of that. But in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is describing this ministry that he has been given, particularly to the Gentiles. And picking up in verse 1, I'll just read through verse 6, we'll see this mystery that Paul's revealing there. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace which was given me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now again, if if we read this as people in Cape Girardeau, Missouri today, we probably don't see the shock of Paul's statement here. But if you're reading it in the first century and you're hearing perhaps as someone who grew up Jewish, that you and that pagan Gentile, that filthy Gentile who just professed faith in Christ, if you're hearing that that Gentile and you are actually on equal footing in Christ, this is a shocking statement Paul makes. Paul writes about this time and time again because this was clearly quite an obstacle in the early church for Jews and Gentiles to embrace one another and understand they're actually on the same footing, on the same grounding in the eyes of Jesus Christ as a result of their faith in him. And so early in Ephesians, that's really the main mystery Paul speaks of. Now having said that, and acknowledging that that mystery probably isn't super surprising to most of us here this morning, we now come to this second mystery. A mystery that I think if we really think about it, is shocking and astonishing to every single one of us regarding our cultural background. For according to Paul in Ephesians 5.32, the mystery he's speaking to now when he describes marriage is is describing the relationship between Christ and the church. Having spoken in great detail of of the love that the husband is to have for the wife, of of how unique this relationship is, Paul makes this direct comparison to how Jesus Christ and the church relate to one another. And indeed, within this one mystery, there's, there's at least two very surprising points, I think. The first one, and this is one that I think is most surprising to people in our culture today, is that the, The construct of marriage, this concept of marriage, this relationship from the beginning, according to Paul here, was actually made for the gospel. One of the primary purposes of creating Adam in the way he created them, one of the primary purposes in creating Adam and Eve to to be joined together in this one relationship, according to Scripture, is to give God's people this foreshadowing of what the relationship would be like when the Messiah would come with God's people. And so when God designed marriage, he designed it with the gospel in mind. He designed it so that people, again, would have this longing for this intense, unique relationship. And they would understand this relationship cannot just be fulfilled in in some half-hearted measure. And so Paul reminds us, or Paul reveals to us here, that the reason why marriage is so important is because, ultimately, again, this is a picture of the gospel. This mystery is great, as unique as this love is, ultimately... What I'm talking about here isn't just between a husband and wife. It's, it's the relationship between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and us as believers. And so recognizing that first surprise, we can then dig into this mystery that pictures the, the, the unity of the believer with Jesus Christ. Because ultimately it's that union with Christ that Paul is seeking to help us understand. Now again, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, if you've been here as Pastor Eric's been going through it, union with Christ is not spoken of for the first time here in Ephesians 5. This has been a a pretty big theme of Paul's writing from the beginning of Ephesians 1. And So again, if you look back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, you see this language used by Paul from the beginning. In Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Before time began, Paul says, you are in Christ, believer. You who profess faith in Christ were actually chosen before the foundations of the earth were laid, and you were chosen In Jesus Christ, when God views you, when the Father views you, He views you in His Son. Paul continues to speak of this language over in Ephesians chapter 2, and to try to help us understand what this looks like, he gives a number of analogies. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 20 through 22, Paul says this, "...having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord." in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul here speaks both the language of being part of the same family, but also this imagery of a building being built up, this church, this temple structure being built up. And in this analogy, in this picture, Christ is the cornerstone, Christ is the most important piece, but you, believer, are also vitally important. You are being fitted in perfectly by God's perfect wisdom, by God's preordained plan. You, believer, are part of the same building as Jesus Christ. Furthermore, later on in Ephesians chapter 4, you have this analogy building. For in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul doesn't just speak of a physical building, but he speaks of a body, a living organism. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Paul says this, as a result, speaking of our our foundation in Christ, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Again, as Paul describes our union with Christ, he tries to tell us it's not just that you're part of a building, you're part of a, a living organism, you are part of a body, and, And even from that last analogy, you can kind of see the intimacy growing in the way Paul's describing your union with Christ and just how close you are, for it's as if you are part of the same body. Paul uses the same language in Corinthians to describe the way the church works. It's a a very common analogy. Once we understand, okay, we as believers are being fitted in like stones. We as believers are like ligaments and and parts of a body, but Christ is always the cornerstone. Christ is is always the head of the body. He is our leader. He is our Savior. He is everything. Everything. And as significant as those analogies are, if you're like me, it's still easy to see separation between yourself and Christ. If you're like me, read these analogies and the response is, oh, that's awesome, Christ is my leader, Christ is my head, but I'm just kind of sympathetic pathetic lig- ligament, right? I'm some unimportant part of the body. I'm that brick in the wall that's kind of chipped out and maybe falling out eventually, right? I'm really not that important, and I'm really not that close to Christ, ultimately, And so as as significant as union uh, in Christ is in these other analogies, I think Paul understands he still quite hasn't reached this apex, this this point of of grand revelation and, and, and shocking revelation of just how close our union with Christ is. He gets to that apex, I think, here in Ephesians 5, when he tells us that it's not just a matter of us being built in the same body or built in the same building, but it is as if we are married to Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus is our husband and Jesus is clinging to us. In the eyes of God, we have been glued together with the Son of God and we are with Him for all eternity. And so as a result, the Son of God will love us as as the husbands were told to love their wives. This union, as Paul is describing here, is not only spiritual, but, but this is ultimate security in the greatest form. For unlike fallen husbands in this world, who at times will cheat on their wives, who will struggle with lust, Jesus will never struggle with the desire to walk away from us. No, Jesus will cling to us. He will cleave to us. It is secure because unlike marriages in this life that are nullified and ended at death, in Jesus Christ, we're guaranteed this marriage forever. From First Thessalonians chapter 4, we're, we're told that we will be resurrected with Jesus Christ. And so not even death can end this marriage, not even that which will end all marriages in this earth, not even that can, can touch our union with Christ. No, from, be, the, from before the foundations of the earth were laid, through eternity future, you are glued to Christ. You, believer, are the bride of the Son of God. And so as we allow that to sink in, what we are hearing is, is again a, a great mystery that Paul is telling us. For as great as the marital relationship can be in Ephesians 5, and again, just imagine the most perfect fairy tale romance you can possibly imagine. As beautiful as that marriage is, as incredible as that marriage is, as enjoyable as that marriage is, it is but a faint echo of the far greater love that Jesus has for you. It is but a shadow of, of the reality of Christ's love for his bride, the church regardless of how glorious your marriage might be here this morning, your unity with Christ is infinitely more impressive. And so as we understand this, we understand again just how beautiful this union is. As we understand this, we understand that The story of the Gospel, again, isn't just some distant God looking at us in an annoyed manner and saying, okay, I guess I'll save a few here and there, I guess I'll do this, but really they don't deserve my mercy or grace. No, the story of the Gospel is the story of of the Son of God, God's only begotten Son, plunged into sinful humanity to rescue His bride, to drag you out of your filth and mire, and to present you with great joy ultimately, Before the angelic heavenly realm. Christ does this with great love. He does this with great joy. With great grace. With great mercy. Christ does this again to show us what true love actually is. And so as we consider this love. As we consider this unity. We as the believer are left with with the right understanding of marriage. We're left with the right understanding of, of getting the fact that. The marriage really is a pretty big deal. This really is a significant relationship. And this is why we must be so careful to to seek out the roles that we've been given as husband and wives and, and to serve in the manner that God has called us to serve. Because ultimately, as we'll see here in a moment, we don't do so just for ourselves or for our own sanctification. We do so to sanctify our partner, and we do so in order to reflect the gospel of the watching world. So that as the world watches you, they're not seeing you, they're seeing Christ in the church. They're seeing an image of the way God loves us. And so recognizing that that reality, recognizing just how important marriage is again, Paul closes this in verse 33 where he says, Nevertheless, in light of this perfect marriage between you and Christ, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Having forced us to look away from ourselves and look uh, look into the heavenly realms and understand this mysterious function of marriage, Paul brings us back to the earth, right? And Paul brings us back to this necessary application of, of marriage and what then this marital relationship is to look like. And it's in light of the way Christ loves us then that we are able to then properly love our spouse. And so for the married, Paul returns to very basic Very practical, but very important concepts that we are to live out. And so for husbands, again, in light of what Christ has done for you, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You are to do exactly what Pastor Eric would have talked about in the the words of the Apostle Paul last week. You are to love in a tender way, in a caring way. You are to love in a way that is sanctifying this daughter of the King, for you recognize that is your role. You are making her better and better as a result of the way you are loving her. For wives... You again are to return to what Paul commanded you earlier in Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 24 where you love your husband in a way that's submissive to his rule. This is not easy by any means, but you do so not because it's easy, but because this is the way the church relates to Jesus Christ. And so in both cases, with both roles, as the world watches you, they're seeing a picture of the gospel. And as they see you love each other rightly, as they see you married to each other as God commands it in Genesis chapter 2, they're seeing this picture of the gospel. So the question we have to ask ourselves is a very convicting question, but it's simply, those of us who are married, is, is this what our marriages are doing? And when people watch the way I love my wife, Jamie, are they seeing the way Jesus Christ loves the church? Honestly? I mean, I'd like to say definitely yes, but I, I confess, I'm a broken man, and I fail a number of times. Sleeping in a hotel room with a three-year-old and a nine-month-old for the last two nights definitely has broken me even further, I feel like, right? It's hard to be as patient as you're supposed to be at all times, but, but this is the constant question. Is my love for Jamie the same love that Christ has for me? Is it that picture? When people look at Jamie and I and how we relate to each other, are they seeing the gospel? Even beyond that, however, I think very thankfully... What Ephesians 5 does for us is it expands our understanding of marriage outside of the lives of those of us who are married. I think one of the mistakes a lot of times we as Christians make when we talk about marriage is we talk as if we're in this club and everyone who's not married is just on the outside looking in and really there's nothing for you singles in passages like this. But what Paul reveals in in speaking of this mystery is, no, this, this mystery is clearly for far more than just husbands and wives. This mystery is for every single believer in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever or you're, you're a believer, but you're single, the main point of application isn't simply "Go get married, and then you'll figure all this stuff out. right That would be a pretty demeaning, pretty harsh application. The point of this passage and other passages like it on marriage for, for those of you who are believers but single, is it, it's a reminder that, that you really do have all the love you could possibly need in Jesus Christ to speak of, of Christ being our husband is not just some cliche, creepy thing we talk about in Christianity. It's, it's the gospel. It's the most glorious, encouraging truth you could ever possibly imagine. And so as much as you perhaps might desire to get married someday, if you are a believer, please hear that this is how Jesus loves you here and now. This is how Jesus loves you forever throughout all eternity. And so as a single person, you can dwell on this love that Jesus Christ has for you. You can strive to submit actively here and now to the rule of Jesus Christ in your life today, and you can rejoice to others. As a youth pastor, I regularly hear students desperately talk about their desire to be dating. And sometimes I hear um, some college students I know speak in this desperation to get married someday, and even though I, I understand the desire, I think at times, as Christians, we've We kind of place marriage between husband and wife above the marriage between Christ and and the church. This is idolatry. We, We must kick this habit. We must learn to appreciate the glorious truth of the love that Jesus Christ has for us as believers. So, both married and unmarried alike, those of us in Jesus, let us rejoice in this truth. Let us take great, great encouragement from this. And let us speak of our love for our bridegroom to everyone that we speak to. Ultimately, of course, this passage is, is really for the believer, though, right? Ultimately, there's a reason why the unbelieving culture around us doesn't get why we're so picky about how marriage is supposed to look and why we make such a big deal about homosexual marriage, about gender issues, and they assume that we're just being, you know, fuddy-duddy people that don't want to have fun and want to limit love. But if you're here as an unbeliever this morning, please hear the words of Paul and hear what we're saying this morning, and understand that when we speak of marriage in the way we do, we do so because we desperately want you to understand that this is ultimately a picture of the gospel. If you're an unbeliever, my hope is that you might be enthralled, you might be amazed by the story of the gospel, in which we are told that this is the way God loves his bride. And so for those of you who are unbelievers, who do not know Christ, my greatest prayer for you this morning is that you might see this love of Christ, you might be convicted by your own lack of submission to Christ, and you, in response, might submit to the Savior by putting your faith in Him and enjoying this love that is promised. If you have any questions about how you do that, of course, feel free to pull any of us aside afterwards. We'd be happy to speak of it. As we close this morning as a church, my prayer is that we might be quick to uphold this concept of marriage and, yes, speak highly of this concept of marriage, but might we never do so in a way that neglects the greater picture, the greater message of the gospel. Let us strive to be the husbands and wives we call called to be, but even just as importantly, if not importantly, let us strive to be the bride of Christ we are called to be. And in so doing, let us proclaim the message of the gospel to a world that simply does not understand marriage, much less this gospel truth that we live for.